Speech by Lord Byron. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Fetterman. Speech given to the House of Lords on February 27, 1812. Debate on the Framework Bill by Lord Byron. My lords, the subject now submitted to your lordships for the first time, though new to the house, is by no means new to the country. I believe it had occupied the serious thoughts of all descriptions of persons, long before its introduction to the notice of that legislature, whose interference alone could be of real service. As a person in some degree connected with the suffering county, though a stranger not only to this house in general, but to almost every individual whose attention I presume to solicit. I must claim some portion of your lordship's indulgence, whilst I offer a few observations on a question in which I confess myself deeply interested. To enter into any detail of the riots would be superfluous. The House is already aware that every outrage short of actual bloodshed has been perpetrated and that the proprietors of the frames obnoxious to the rioters, and all persons supposed to be connected with them, have been liable to insult and violence. During the short time I recently passed in Nottinghamshire, not twelve hours elapsed without some fresh act of violence, and on the day I left the county I was informed that forty frames had been broken the preceding evening, as usual, without resistance and without detection. Such was then the state of that county, and such I have reason to believe it to be at this moment. But whilst these outrages must be admitted to exist to an alarming extent, it cannot be denied that they have arisen from circumstances of the most unparalleled distress. The perseverance of these miserable men in their proceedings tends to prove that nothing but absolute want could have driven a large and once honest and industrious body of the people into the commission of excesses so hazardous to themselves, their families, and the community. At the time to which I allude, the town and county were burdened with large detachments of the military. The police was in motion, the magistrates assembled, yet all the movements, civil and military, had led to nothing. Not a single instance had occurred of the apprehension of any real delinquent actually taken in the fact, against whom there existed legal evidence sufficient for conviction. But the police, however useless, were by no means idle. Several notorious delinquents had been detected. Men, liable to conviction on the clearest evidence of the capital crime of poverty, men who had been nefariously guilty of lawfully begetting several children whom, thanks to the times, they were unable to maintain. Considerable injury has been done to the proprietors of the improved frames. These machines were to them an advantage inasmuch as they superseded the necessity of employing a number of workmen who were left in consequence to starve. By the adoption of one species of frame in particular, one man performed the work of many, and the superfluous laborers 
were thrown out of employment. Yet it is to be observed that the work thus executed was inferior in quality, not marketable at home, and merely hurried over with a view to exportation. It was called in the cant of the trade by the name of spider-work. The rejected workmen, in the blindness of their ignorance, instead of rejoicing at these improvements in arts so beneficial to mankind, conceived themselves to be sacrificed to improvements in mechanism. In the foolishness of their hearts, they imagined that the maintenance and well-doing of the industrious poor were objects of greater consequence than the enrichment of a few individuals by any improvement. In the implements of trade which threw the workmen out of employment and rendered the laborer unworthy of his hire. And it must be confessed that although the adoption of the enlarged machinery in that state of our commerce, which the country once boasted, might have been beneficial to the master without being detrimental to the servant, yet in the present situation of our manufactures, rotting in warehouses, without a prospect of exportation, with the demand for work and workmen equally diminished, frames of this description tend materially to aggravate the distress and discontent of the disappointed sufferers. But the real cause of these distresses and consequent disturbances lies deeper. When we are told that these men are leagued together not only for the destruction of their own comfort, but of their very means of subsistence? Can we forget that it is the bitter policy, the destructive warfare of the last 18 years, which has destroyed their comfort, your comfort, all men's comfort? That policy, which originating with great statesmen now no more, has survived the dead to become a curse on the living, unto the third and fourth generation, these men never destroyed their looms till they were become useless, worse than useless, till they were become actual impediments to their exertions in obtaining their daily bread. Can you then wonder that in times like these, when bankruptcy, convicted fraud, and imputed felony are found in a station not far beneath that of your lordships, the lowest, though once most useful portion of the people, should forget their duty in their distresses, and become only less guilty than one of their representatives. But while the exalted offender can find means to baffle the law, new capital punishments must be devised, new snares of death must be spread for the wretched mechanic who is famished into guilt. These men were willing to dig, but the spade was in other hands, they were not ashamed to beg, but there was none to relieve them. Their own means of subsistence were cut off, all other employments preoccupied, and their excesses, however to be deplored and condemned, can hardly be subject of surprise. It has been stated that the persons in the temporary possession of frames connive at their destruction. If this be proved upon inquiry, it were necessary that such material accessories to the crime should be principles in the punishment. But I did hope that any measure proposed by His Majesty's government for your lordship's decision 
would have had conciliation for its basis, or if that were hopeless, that some previous inquiry, some deliberation would have been deemed requisite, not that we should have been called at once without examination and without cause to pass sentences by wholesale and sign death warrants blindfolded. But, admitting that these men had no cause of complaint, that the grievances of them and their employers were alike groundless, that they deserved the worst. What inefficiency, what imbecility has been evinced in the method chosen to reduce them? Why were the military called out to be made a mockery of, if they were to be called out at all? As far as the difference of seasons would permit, they have merely parodied the summer campaign of Major Sturgeon, and indeed the whole proceedings, civil and military, seemed on the model of those of the mayor and corporation of Garrett. Such marchings and countermarchings, from Nottingham to Bulwell, from Bulwell to Banford, from Banford to Mansfield, and when at length the detachments arrived at their destination, in all the pride and circumstance of glorious war. They came just in time to witness the mischief which had been done, and ascertain the escape of the perpetrators, to collect the spolio opima in the fragments of broken frames, and return to their quarters amidst the derision of old women and the hootings of children. Now, though, in a free country, it were to be wished that our military should never be too formidable, at least to ourselves. I cannot see the policy of placing them in situations where they can only be made ridiculous. As the sword is the worst argument that can be used, so should it be the last. In this instance, it has been the first, but providentially as yet only in the scabbard. The present measure will indeed pluck it from the sheath. Yet had proper meetings been held in the earlier stages of these riots, had the grievances of these men and their masters, for they also had their grievances, been fairly weighed and justly examined, I do think that means might have been devised to restore these workmen to their avocations and tranquility to the county. At present, the county suffers from the double infliction of an idle military and a starving population. In what state of apathy have we been plunged so long that now for the first time the house has been officially apprised of these disturbances? All this has been transacting within 130 miles of London, and yet we, good, easy men, have deemed full sure our greatness was a ripening, and have sat down to enjoy our foreign triumphs in the midst of domestic calamity. But all the cities you have taken, all the armies which have retreated before your leaders, are but paltry subjects of self-congratulation. If your land divides against itself, and your dragoons and your executioners must be let loose against your fellow citizens, you call these men a mob, desperate, dangerous, and ignorant, and seem to think that the only way to quiet the Belua Multorum Capitum is to lop off a few of its superfluous heads. But even a mob may be better reduced to reason by a mixture of conciliation and firmness 
than by additional irritation and redoubled penalties. Are we aware of our obligations to a mob? It is the mob that labor in your fields and serve in your houses, that man your navy and recruit your army, that have enabled you to defy all the world and can also defy you when neglect and calamity have driven them to despair. You may call the people a mob, but do not forget that a mob too often speaks the sentiments of the people. And here I must remark, with what alacrity you are accustomed to fly to the succor of your distressed allies, leaving the distressed of your own country to the care of Providence or the parish. When the Portuguese suffered under the retreat of the French, every arm was stretched out, every hand was opened, from the rich man's largesse to the widow's might. All was bestowed to enable them to rebuild their villages and replenish their granaries. And at this moment, when thousands of misguided but most unfortunate fellow countrymen are struggling with the extremes of hardship and hunger, as your charity began abroad, it should end at home. A much less sum, a tithe of the bounty bestowed on Portugal, even if those men, which I cannot admit without inquiry, could not have been restored to their employments, would have been rendered unnecessary the tender mercies of the bayonet and the gibbet. But doubtless our friends have too many foreign claims to admit a prospect of domestic relief, though never did such objects demand it. I have traversed the seat of war in the peninsula. I have been in some of the most oppressed provinces of Turkey, but never under the most despotic of infidel governments did I behold such squalid wretchedness as I have seen since my return in the very heart of a Christian country. And what are your remedies? After months of inaction, and months of action worse than inactivity, at length comes forth the grand specific, the never-failing nostrum of all state physicians, from the days of Draco to the present time, after feeling the pulse and shaking the head over the patient, prescribing the usual course of warm water and bleeding, the warm water of your mawkish police and the lancets of your military, these convulsions must terminate in death, the sure consummation of the prescriptions of all political sangrados, setting aside the palpable injustice and the certain inefficiency of the bill are there not capital punishments sufficient in your statutes? Is there not enough blood upon your penal code that more must be poured forth to ascend to heaven and testify against you? How will you carry the bill into effect? Can you commit a whole country to their own prisons? Will you erect a gibbet in every field and hang up men like scarecrows? Or will you proceed? as you must to bring this measure into effect, by decimation, place the country under martial law, depopulate and lay waste all around you, and restore Sherwood Forest as an acceptable gift to the crown, in its former condition of a royal chase and an asylum for outlaws. Are these the remedies for a starving and desperate populace? 
Will the famished wretch who has braved your bayonets be appalled by your gibbets? When death is a relief, and the only relief it appears that you will afford him, will he be dragooned into tranquility? Will that which could not be effected by your grenadiers be accomplished by your executioners? If you proceed by the forms of law, where is your evidence? Those who have refused to impeach their accomplices when transportation only was the punishment will hardly be tempted to witness against them when death is the penalty. With all due deference to the noble lords opposite, I think a little investigation, some previous inquiry, would induce even them to change their purpose. That most favorite state measure, so marvelously efficacious in many and recent instances, temporizing would not be without its advantages in this. When a proposal is made to emancipate or relieve, you hesitate. You deliberate for years, you temporize and tamper with the minds of men. But a death bill must be passed offhand, without a thought of the consequences. Sure I am, from what I have heard, and from what I have seen, that to pass the bill under all the existing circumstances, without inquiry, without deliberation, would only be to add injustice to irritation, and barbarity to neglect. The framers of such a bill must be content to inherit the honors that the Athenian lawgiver, whose edicts were said to be written not in ink, but in blood. But suppose it passed. Suppose one of these men, as I have seen them, meager with famine, sullen with despair, careless of a life which your lordships are perhaps about to value at something less than the price of a stocking frame. Suppose this man surrounded by children, for whom he is unable to procure bread at the hazard of his existence, about to be torn forever from a family which he lately supported in peaceful industry, and which it is not his fault that he can no longer so support. Suppose this man, and there are ten thousand such from whom you may select your victims, dragged into court, to be tried for this new offense by this new law. Still there are two things wanting to convict and condemn him, and these are, in my opinion, twelve butchers for a jury, and a Jeffreys for a judge. End of speech. Recording by David Fetterman.